independent, expressive of a spirit of independence, self-confident, unconstrained. Good evening and welcome to Independence Day. This is the show that examines the changing face of the music business and the people who are doing the changing. Independence Day brings you independent artists, producers, and music industry visionaries with in-depth interviews, live performances, and inside information without hype and direct from the artists who practice their craft. Tonight on Independence Day, we have the lovely Monica Lewis. Try and imagine a simpler time, a time before on-demand entertainment and endless digital distractions. One might call it a golden age, and legendary singer and actress Monica Lewis was there for all of it. A true Hollywood beauty with bona fide talent, Lewis was known as America's singing sweetheart, and her resume includes turns with more stars than even Carl Sagan might have imagined. She worked with Benny Goodman, Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney. She shared stages with Bob Hope and Jimmy Stewart. She appeared on the very first Ed Sullivan show. She ran with the likes of Dean Martin, Clint Eastwood, Paul Newman, and Ted Kennedy. She dated Ronald Reagan and Kirk Douglas. Yeah, that Ronald Reagan. She lived a life of glamour from New York to Beverly Hills and enchanted people in every town in between. Lewis joins us tonight to shine a light of her own and share stories of a life in the entertainment business that may also be found in her new memoir, Hollywood Through My Eyes. Welcome to Independence Day, Monica. Well, thank you very much, Joe. I'm just lovely to be here. It's, it's, it's an honor to have you. This is great. We were talking before the show started. We, we learned about you because of your granddaughter, Nikki, who was an artist we had. She's a singer-songwriter. We had her on the program about, I guess, two months ago or so. Yes. And we had a wonderful time talking to her. And then her dad suggested we talk to you. And I, I had no idea she had another famous person in her family. And <laughs> looks like you, you kind of trumped them all, it seems like. Well, I've lived the longest. I'm going to be 90. My And congratulations. That's, that's, that's a very, very impressive feat. And you're sharp as a tack. Well, thank you. You're sharper than most of my friends. <laughs> <laughs> and some of mine. And some of yours, too. <laughs> so, again, it's an absolute honor to have you. Uh, I'm just I'm very curious to hear. You probably have a million stories, and I'm going to try to cram as many as we can get into in this hour here. Because Whatever. It's, such, it's uh, you know, you're, you're, a, uh, you know, you're a, a walking repository of, of it's got to be great stories. So tell me, when you grew up, you know, mm-hmm. you originally are from Chicago, originally, yes. as was I. Yes. And, but, you know, you said you were about 11 when you moved to New York. But yes. your very first, your earliest days, your earliest musical memories, like what were those? Like what sparked this, this thing of music that set you off on doing something for your entire life? Well, you have to go back to the real beginning. My mother was an opera singer. Mm-hmm. And my father was a com- uh, composer, conductor, virtuoso pianist. That was in Chicago? In Chicago, and um, <clears throat> my big sister was also a very accomplished pianist, and my brother was a fantastic violinist, but he played all the jazz instruments as well. And I was the baby, and I was an eight-years-later baby. Mm-hmm. So, an afterthought baby? Yeah, an, an accident baby. An accident baby? baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what my mama said. And she Oops. said, but it was worth it. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. And, of course, I couldn't compete with them. They were all so accomplished so early. Uh-huh. So um, I was trying to take a piano lesson at five, and my father said to my mother, Jessica, let's forget it. Let her sing. Mm-hmm. Her hands are too tiny. She learns everything immediately by ear. So she's never going to really work hard yeah. at reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And that was that. And so then I became an acrobat, and I became, I imitated everybody I could find, and I tried to sing, and I tried mm. to do everything. You know, in a lot of families, the youngest child is kind of the clown. Were you, <laughs> were you the, clown, the family, like, kind of clown? I mean, you were in a, a performing family, so how do you even tell? I don't know if I was a clown. I was the, the adored baby, mm. and uh, they just uh, doted on me. I think my sister and brother thought they were my parents. Mm-hmm that mom and dad really didn't know how to raise me. Yeah. So I had four people constantly watching me and telling me I was great and, and babying me, and mm-hmm. uh, it it didn't hurt me one bit because so, uh, I felt totally part of everything. Uh-huh. When you were, so when you were very young, your mother was still actively performing opera? or No, she was teaching, though. Teaching, okay. And uh, I knew that I could never make it in opera. I didn't mm-hmm. have the volume. And I didn't have the range. Uh-huh. Now, you don't know that at five, but <laughs> I knew that at 16, uh-huh. for sure. And uh, I had always been a jazz lover. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the whole family loved music eclectically. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, they loved all kinds of music, from opera to symphony to jazz to R&B when it came in. They, they were jazz fans. And I became what I thought was a jazz singer because I imitated Ella Fitzgerald every time I could. Under the table in the dining room, if you'd stop in to say hello or have coffee, Uh I'd want to sing you an Ella Fitzgerald song. And I thought I was just hot, you know. And uh, it was different from what they did. Uh So that was my—music was our religion Uh in my home. So coming from a classical family, I mean, was jazz accepted or was it kind of like the rock and roll of its time where it was almost frowned upon? No, they loved it. Okay. They loved it. In fact, my dad was given the rights to um, Gershwin's uh, Rhapsody in Blue, I believe it was, uh, long before I can recall as the second person who was allowed to uh, perform it. I think Paul Whiteman, which if you look in the books or look on Google Mm -hmm. uh, today. We were talking about that beforehand. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Bringing up to today's world, uh, Paul Whiteman was a big star uh, orchestra leader in those days, and uh, my dad was head of uh, CBS in Chicago, music division. And he was the youngest um, president uh, of the American, uh, Chicago's American... Uh, college. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a better name. For, it went a little differently to name it. American, American College of Music of Chicago or something. He was 23 or 4 when he was president. Um, th- no, they loved jazz. And they loved black artists. And they loved, they loved everything. But it always about music. Mm-hmm. When it was good, it was good. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure in later years that they jumped for rock and roll that much because the cacophony and the lack of singing ability of some of the people who just played great guitar and hollered Mm -hmm. uh, seemed to bother them a bit. They prefer not to have to listen to that at length. Mm -hmm. They would listen to some of it, you know. Yeah, it's hard to miss it. It was everywhere. It was everywhere, and and they liked. I mean, they liked some of it. Mm -hmm. They just uh, they were more purist. Yeah, and jazz for them was kind of a purist situation of improvisation mm-hmm. and uh, talent, and uh, they liked it, and uh-huh. they loved swing. Uh huh. 
and the big bands. So, but then, you know, you, you're a young singer, you know, and then you said you were about 11, your family relocated to New York. Why was, why, what precipitated that move? Money. Yeah? Lack of. None. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what year would that have been then? Was this? It was after, well, after the Depression. After the Depression. 1929 was the Depression. Everybody went broke. Uh-huh except those few who didn't. And uh, my father was scrounging, and uh, it was bad. And everybody was... My sister and brother both had scholarships at uh, universities. My sister had a scholarship at uh, Northwestern and my brother at Chicago University, and they had to quit because we all had to pile into the car, which was our last thing that we owned, Mm -hmm. and drive to New York where we stayed then for about a week or two with my dad's brother, who lived in New York, till we found a brownstone that we could live in, and he borrowed some money, and my mom hawked her jewelry, and Mm -hmm. it was like really down time. And how was that change for you at 11? I mean, was this an exciting change? Was this something that you dreaded leaving Chicago as the only town you'd ever known, or what did you think about that? Whither thou goest... You know, I was with my mommy and daddy and my mm. sister and my brother and my doll. They let me yeah. take my two favorite dolls. And yeah. uh, I was a bit frightened on the streets. Uh, I thought every tall building was a hotel. Uh-huh. And uh, I didn't go anywhere alone. Yeah. My mom walked me to schools. They enrolled me in public school down the street. But she would walk with me to school. And uh, but pretty soon, you know, kids are resilient. Yeah, yeah. Their their reality is whatever's in front of them. You know, they they kind of roll with the punches and accept it. I mean, uh, that's that's something. Even now, my family moved when I was in college, and my younger siblings they just they just settled in. I mean, at first they were sad to leave, but then now I don't think they can imagine anything different. No, it, you, know? you you just have to. Well, I don't think I intellectualized it. I just got yeah. used to it. Yeah. And it became my home. Yeah, the new normal. The new normal, exactly Absolutely. right. So exactly. let's let's hear a little bit of music from sure. you know, of your, your stuff here, because I want to give people a taste of what you were all about back in the Good. back in the golden days, the golden ages we were talking about before. Um, this is a track from this is uh, the record Monica Lewis. The song is you. Uh, the track, the title track, the song is you, and this was about 1956. You said, right? Exactly. This takes us back a pretty good ways, and I'm I'm very proud to have this on the show. I'm happy to have you here. And a wonderful and, orchestra. Yes, awesome. I can't wait to hear it. I can't wait for our listeners to hear it. And we'll be coming back just after this. We'll talk some more. Thanks. Okay. This is uh, okay. Monica Lewis with the song is you on Independence Day. The music is sweet. The words are true. The song is you. Is this the day? 
can't I let it go? Why can't I let you know? Why can't I let you know the song my heart would sing? That beautiful rhapsody of love and youth and spring. The music is sweet. The words are true. The song is you. That is the beautiful voice of Monica Lewis, and we have her, the beautiful version of her in the flesh here in the studio with us tonight, the Independence Day studio. Welcome, Monica, again. Oh, thank you. So happy to have you. You're, you're a radiant beauty, even today. Oh, you're sweet. <laughs> thank you very much. And that's your, your voice is beautiful. That's quite a vibrato you've got there. Did you? Was that a natural thing? Did yeah. You, yeah? Uh-huh. That's pretty cool. You know the the real the real singers can you you can of course manipulate it you know you yes. can make it go away sing straight tone or sing vibrato um you know and one thing we can notice you know, note here as well I mean these recordings these are the old style of recording where everybody's in the room everybody's playing live nobody's punching in nobody's overdubbing you know it's like we were saying before if the trumpet player played a flat seven when he should have been playing a major seven they had to go back and do it again there was no manipulation. And no technical assistance. You yeah. had an engineer, of course, but he only said, stand back a little, or that's mm-hmm. fine, or sounds good, or, yeah. you know. Yeah, very, very nice. I mean, that's, I, I call it, that's the honest way of recording. Every every now and again, a modern artist will do something like that, where they'll record everything live, and that's, Acoustic, I enjoy that. Yeah, yeah I, I really enjoy that. Um, so that's that's fantastic. So let's get back to your story just a little bit. You know, you moved to New York. You're about 11. And then what what was your first like? How did you get into the business itself? Like, you know, your parents were part of the business, um, but like, what was your first singing break that got your name out there? Well, it started with um, I was on the street walking with my dad, and he ran into a booking agent, a fellow he knew and introduced me as his little daughter, and that I was just graduating from high school and so forth, and that I could sing and was looking for a job. And he said, do you have headshots? And I didn't know what that was. So I said, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know, uh, uh, do I have headshots, Dad? And he said, no, but we'll get them. Mm-hmm. And he said, do you have arrangements? I said, no, but... You know, I know how to sing a song, and I know what I want to do with it, and I know mm-hmm. what it should be arranged, how it should be arranged. And uh, he said, okay, 
well, if your dad says you can sing, you can sing. He said, so you get your headshots and uh, make a date. Dad, you can make a date with me Thursday or Friday next week, you know, and we'll see what we can do with your little girl. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, in the meanwhile, had met somebody, and I don't recall that, and I had gotten myself a job on WMCA in New York, which was a local station, singing on Saturdays for 15 minutes mm-hmm. with a very old-time organist who couldn't swing at all, <laughs> and I got $5. And I thought that was pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Cool, as my grandchildren yeah, would yeah. say. And uh, so I had that going, and then this guy, Saul, uh, got me three gigs uh, in three cities, Baltimore and Philadelphia, and so all on the East Coast, close by, and my mom went with me, and I opened in a nightclub where they had three shows a night, and of course, I didn't have enough orchestrations and everything, so there was this hurry, and my dad knocked out a few things, and that was... and. They had a raunchy comic, uh-huh. and but Mama was with me. Uh-huh. Was was that eye opening having the a raunchy very comic? Very eye opening, very eye opening. The sec the third show was at two in the morning. It was oh eight, twelve, and two. Lord, came back to New York, <laughs> and then I was engaged uh, for on WHN to be on a show called Gloom Dodgers, which started mm-hmm. at six in the morning, which was a wake up show. Mm-hmm. So I sang some sort of a song about good morning. I think it was, good morning, good morning, we've danced the whole night through, good morning, something like that. Mm -hmm. And hello, everybody, rise and shine. And Uh so that I did for about a year, and I got more money for that. I think I got $20 a day. No, I couldn't have. $20 maybe a week. A week more. Yeah, and... um, it just started to siphon around that people started to think I was pretty good. And I got a call from the advertising agency of the Chesterfield Cigarettes. And uh, they said they had a very big show, which was national, which had Perry Como and Joe Stafford. And it was on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday nights. And they wanted to add to their series of shows. This was 39 weeks of, which was the day, in those days, that's what the way a show was booked. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And they wanted a fresh young voice. And they were going to use a guy named Johnny Johnston for the boy. And we would introduce one new song every week that we predicted would be a hit. And we had a show, uh, for 39 weeks, and um, I think it was renewed. I think I, it was, was in 44, went on in 44. We went off late 45, uh, when actually when Roosevelt was killed, or died, rather. He died. Um, and I was on that show, and that became, and that was national, and that became very, very important. And I had national publicity by... You would think it was today, Angelina Jolie. I -hmm. mean, this was unbelievable, the way the CBS did it. And I became a national name in radio. And how old were you at that point? Uh, 20-ish. 
Wow. Maybe 20. So you were on your way. Yeah. And so let's let's hear a little bit more music. Sure. You know, we'll come back. Well, because after that, we'll talk a little bit more about New York and then how you wound up out here in Los Angeles. Absolutely. Can't wait to hear about that, too. So this is, again, this is Monica Lewis. We've got her live in the Independence Day studio talking to her about the golden age of radio. You got started just like I did in radio once upon a time. <laughs> and uh, with your beautiful voice and, you know, eventually you get into acting and lots of other exciting things, too. So this is from that same CD, 1956. Monica Lewis's The Song Is For You. This is the track, I Get a Kick Out of You, which we've, you know, lots of famous voices have uh, lent their voice to that song. So I can't wait to hear this version from you, Monica Lewis, on Independence Day. Get no kick from champagne Mere alcohol doesn't thrill me at all So tell me why should it be true That I get a kick out of you Some like the perfume from Spain I'm sure that if I took even one sniff It would bore me terrifically too Yet I get a kick out of you I get a kick every time I see you standing there before me. I get a kick, though it's plain to see you obviously don't adore me. Some get their kicks in a plane, riding too high with some guy in the sky. Is my idea of nothing to do, yet I get a kick out of you. Monica Lewis here on Independence Day. We've got her live in the studio. That was from 1956. That's awesome. That's <laughs> awesome. It sounds fantastic, by the way. Excellent version of that song. Lots of people have sung that song, and yours is right yep. up there with all the best of them. It's mm-hmm. uh, nice and it's, it's it's snappy. Yes. You know, a little faster tempo. So um, you're coming up. You're a young singer. You're 20 years old. You're starting to get work. And then somehow you got this Chiquita Banana job mm-hmm. how did like what what exactly was that you were the voice of the banana the voice. Okay. yes the voice of the banana so this was a live radio promotion correct? yes well then they recorded them okay 
I'm Chiquita Banana, and I've come to say bananas have to ripen in a certain way. And this goes on and on and uh-huh. on. And I must, I worked, did that for 14 years. Oh, my. And then they flew me out to California where they made these cartoons, which were shown mm-hmm. in theaters and on television. And they were charming, just so much fun. Mm-hmm. And I did all the voices, and I had to read recipes. Of course, I was never on camera. Mm-hmm. It was just, I was Chiquita. Mm-hmm. And uh, it paid my rent and everybody else's for a lot of years. <laughs> yeah. So how did you, like, you know, did that come out as a I result don't of your radio work? Yes, absolutely. Because okay. okay. I don't even remember who spoke to me first about it. Uh-huh. Perhaps the advertising agency introduced me to somebody. I don't remember that. Yeah. I just remember doing it. A lot of it, it sounds a like. A lot of it. Did you get tired of it? Or no. Was it, was it, it was always fun? Always fun. I always had fun. Yeah. I loved what I was doing. Yeah. I just, you know, some people say, oh, she's got a sunny personality, or she's a Pollyanna, or she's a goody-goody. That's not true. I have my moments of despair and anguish like everyone else. I think the only way you can uh, attack life or live it is to make a bad day better and a good day great. Mm -hmm. And as far as what I was doing, I sometimes didn't like some of my co-workers or I sometimes felt somebody was taking advantage of me or I sometimes felt hurt or left out and all those things. But I had so much going on. And my mom was pretty sage, and she said to me, you know, you've got two legs to walk on, you've got eyes that can see, you know, you're very pretty, and you sing. And everyone wants to hear you, so what's your problem? (laughs) Get get on with it. (laughs) You know, know, what's this about? You know what's funny? That strikes me as a very Chicago way to be that's one of the things that i really like about my hometown is that they do not suffer fools and they don't have time for trifles like these sorts of things just get on with it it's a working city whatever it is that you do even if your work is art get on with it whatever it is make it better move on move forward one foot in front of the other you know and sometimes an a and r guy would say that you have to sing a certain song that maybe you didn't love when you got bigger and you knew that they were talking about not ratings in those days, but sales. Uh-huh. So, you know, you do the best with it you could and made sure you got one song in that session that you really loved. Mm-hmm. But you just, it's the old saying, do it. Are you a talker or a doer? Mm-hmm. There's a line in uh, one of the movies that was so funny um, years ago. It was written by a great writer in which she said, she had this Brooklyn accent. She said, Mr., are you a talker or a doer? And, you know, it it hit me Mm -hmm. that do it. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you you can keep talking while you're doing it if you'd like to talk about it. That's (laughs) fine. But as long as you're doing it, you're you're doing okay. So so you've got the Chiquita Banana gig, and then your your star is continuing to rise at this point. It started to record. Starting to record. Tell me about that. How did that start? Well, that started with Signature Records. And uh, this young man, Bob Thiel, and I were dating and subsequently got married, which was a huge mistake because we were like, should have been in the sand pile playing with toys. But we did create a record company that was quite good and was then bought by Decca, 
and uh, it all the songs are still around, and he had some marvelous artists. And uh, I became uh, a recording artist, and I was bought by Decca, away from Signature. And um, that marriage dissolved after a year. It was just mm-hmm. not meant to be. And uh, I just became more anxious to be very successful and more anxious to work, 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 and became a workaholic. And I started to do personal appearances, and I played the Paramount Theater in New York, which was so hot because of Sinatra when he was there, and the little girls, it's legendary. You know, everybody went swooning. And and uh, I played all the major uh, nightclubs in those days were quite beautiful with a beautiful dressing room. It was quite different from now. And um, unless you're a huge star. Now it seems like you're lucky if the place isn't on fire when you show up. At least that's what it feels like. Or only if you're a very big star. And everything now is a tour of arenas. You know, it's arenas. Because the little clubs that uh, I don't see how the youngsters get ahead. because And they do. But they don't have the opportunity. They have to walk in cold off the street practically. There's sometimes nowhere. Well, I didn't have so, so many places to dress in the beginning either. I remember having to dress with the waiters, hmm. and we hung a sheet between them and me so that I could change my dress. That's, that's, that's the glamour of show business, yeah, right? Right, right. Yeah? Yeah. But uh, I succeeded quickly and got used to a higher level and more money. Mm-hmm. of course, which was, of course, the ultimate object. Mm-hmm. But it was never like, oh, my God, I have to do this because I need the money. It was, oh, my God, I'm doing what I love, and I'm getting the money. Yeah, you know? your cake, you're having your cake and yeah. eating it, too, which is the, that's the dream that I think everybody strives for. You know, For me, it was the same way. I mean, I, I would hope that the money would come, but I really did it because I love it. Yeah. I still do it because I love well, it. Well, that's the way the, to be. You know, that's the reason I don't to do think it. you can do a good job if you don't love it. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah, and even, you know, and that's the thing with the music business, as glamorous as it might be sometimes and as fun as it might be sometimes, it's work and you take your lumps. You know, oh, yeah. There are, you know, there's the day where you wind up in the middle seat in the van or, you know, on a ride to Cleveland on a snowy night or, you know, it, you know, it's it's not all wine and roses. There's there's no. there's stuff, but it's but it's part of the experience. And the way my my favorite phrase when I think about those things are, it's uh, it's better than a real job. <laughs> well, yeah. I always thought it was just the way you were, the way I was. This is what I do. Um, you know, my sister-in-law once said to me, uh, if someone grabbed you in the corner and said, "Who are you and what do you do?" I'd say, "I'm Monica Lewis and I sing." And that's what I did for a number of years before I became an actress as uh-huh. well. And I did personal appearances and I did magic tricks and I did everything else to uh-huh. make an act exciting. Show business. Tap dancing, everything. And uh, then, of course, I uh, think very importantly, I got involved with the war effort. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was always very patriotic. And. Uh, wanted to do whatever I could do. And the best thing I could do is sing for the troops or mm-hmm. sell bonds in Times Square and do whatever was necessary. That so. was in the uh, late 40s, mm-hmm. I would say. So where did you? Where did that take you? That must have taken you pretty far afield then. Well, I had, I would say, outside of Betty Grable, who was then a big movie star, 
I probably got the most fan mail of anybody uh, from these troops. And my recordings were played all over the world in all the hospitals and all the places where they could have a place to play them, a bedside radios and stuff for the guys who had been, and ladies perhaps in those days, not as many as now, uh, who were in, in hospitals from wounds they uh, got during the battle. Mm-hmm. And then I had an offer from MGM Films uh, to make a couple of movies or have a, you know, and I didn't want to make a long contract, so I made only a two-year contract. And they were in the flux of where they were changing from being the great, 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 great uh, studio for musicals. But L.G. L.B. Mayer had left, and Dory Sherry came in, and he changed the whole thing, and all the musical artists were leaving there like crazy. So I got in on the tail of that, which was unfortunate that I didn't get a better timing. Uh, but that, again, life is what it is. And I made the most of those movies in the sense that it then extended my range of popularity even further, and therefore... I became a bigger name and uh-huh. a bigger salary mm-hmm. and all of that and more in control of my life. I think the biggest change in my life was when Danny Kaye asked me if I would go with him to Korea. We had then the Korean War. They called it the Korean Interchange in those days. Like, people didn't know. You get killed, it's war. And uh, If it walks like a duck. Yeah, exactly. And I went with him. Just four of us went. Danny and myself, his pianist, an accompanist with a portable fold-up piano, <laughs> and a young lady named June Bruner who had an accordion, which also folded up, and just us. And we did uh, 150,000 troops. We were there 23 days. Um, it was the most amazing experience I'd had in my life up to that time. Mm-hmm. And it... Uh, totally changed me because I saw these 18, 19-year-old kids hanging from the trees, wanting to, with little cameras and flash little, we'd all, they'd light a match at the end of the show in the uh-huh. dark, you know, and they were so grateful. And I saw things. We were five miles behind the enemy line one night, and that was one night I didn't want to ever relive. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I came back, my... It was like the stars went out of my eyes about the movie stars and the movie business and the whole thing. I loved the film business. I loved it. But suddenly the commissary, where you'd see all the big stars, it became like a, a cafeteria to me. That's where you go for lunch. You know, True, I had lunch with Ava Gardner, but Ava Gardner was my friend. Mm-hmm. So it was, we would have had lunch somewhere. Yeah, got to eat. (laughs) Yeah, I got to eat. And uh, it was a very uh, interesting experience for me at MGM, and I learned a lot. And I was quite upset because they tried to make me into Lana Turner. Lana had gotten married and was pregnant. And so they decided I should be the threat. Mm -hmm. And they announced all kinds of pictures that I was going to be in, which were her parts. And she lost the baby, unfortunately came back to work good, and now they didn't know what to do with me. 
So then the next thing, the bunch of pictures they took of me instead of me looking like Lana, were uh, they did me up as Janie Powell and put me up with a lot of dimples, which I have, but uh, the point is it was hilarious. And Lana was so great. She came over to me in a parking lot and she said, you know, Bob, her husband's name was Bob. She said, Bob and I just loved you when you opened at Macombo. You are such a great singer. And she said, don't let them try to make you like me because I can't do what you do. Yeah. And she, I said, I don't know what to do. And she said, go in there and stand on your own two feet and say, I'm Monica Lewis and this is what I should be doing. And you know, <laughs> she was just so darling. Uh, I didn't do that, but I did my two years there, which were very, very good for me to have done, even though I didn't get what I wanted out of it emotionally or uh, in a career sense for me. They made me record for them. They made me, I couldn't do television where I had done the first Ed Sullivan show uh -huh. and I had a no, my own little show in New York and all this stuff in radio. I couldn't do anything and I was doing so well in personal appearances. I couldn't do anything but be there. And uh, it had its drawbacks, but it had its good points and I knew how to utilize those. Mm-hmm. And I got so much publicity and so much acclaim for everything I was doing that it was well worth it. And then I made some movies for other companies. And, um, and I went back to New York in 1953 and opened at the Plaza, the famous Plaza Hotel and uh, the Persian Room. And it was uh, really a triumphant opening that the next night, they didn't know how many people they were going to get in there. Oh, it's a very chic place, very, very top drawer. And uh, they had to hire 20 more waiters because I had draw, it was such a draw. And it was a big thing, you know, Monica Lewis returns to New York, uh -huh. all this stuff. And uh, my, my life was set I continued to do a lot of work for the armed forces. I had a show um, that I did for them. I would do it on Saturdays in which all the uh, people in the service would write letters and request songs. And then I would go in and just you know, whip through a quick rehearsal with three guys. I had already knew what I was doing, my key and what I wanted, and we'd record and then I'd answer their mail, you mm -hmm. know. And uh, I always was involved with that. And then I met somebody I really fell in love with deeply, and uh, I got married in uh, 1956. And uh, 1958, I had uh, my first child, an only child. I adopted two children because they were my husband's children, and unfortunately their mother had died. I never knew her. And, um, but I had my son, Rocky, and I just said to myself, this marriage and this child and this husband and this life will be my best production. Mm -hmm. And nothing else will compare to it that I have done in the past. And everybody said, but don't you miss being this and don't you miss being New York and don't you miss being Monica Lewis? I said, I am. I'm just... And I'm not playing a role. This is my job. This is it. And I remember Jacqueline Kennedy said something very brilliant in her day. And she said, child bungling is the worst sin you can 
a commit. And I wanted to raise his kids, and I wanted to raise my baby. And I did. And um, I supported every move of my husband's. Who He was just brilliant, Jennings Lang. He was just a brilliant, funny, wonderful mm-hmm. guy. He's a movie producer. Yes. Yeah. Tell us some of the titles so that our listening audience okay. can get an idea Earthquake. of Earthquake. Mm-hmm. They're big disaster films. A big lot of those disasters. In the 70s. And then he did some marvelous comedies like House Calls, and he did a lot of stuff with Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon that were hilarious. And It's uh, hard to have those guys not be funny. You could, you could put them yeah. in a plain white room <laughs> with nothing else happening, in a chair maybe, and they would be hilarious. He was actually responsible for Jaws. Although he didn't take a credit on it, but he put it to got the people put it together. Mm-hmm. He became executive producer of a lot of things, which meant that he got it got it made. Got it greenlighted. Yeah, and um, also uh, the Sting actually, mm-hmm. because he got Brown and Zanuck involved in it, mm-hmm. and he got the cast because he was a magnet for higher class talent, and uh, Paul Newman was like. What do you want me to do, Jennings? You know, do you think I ought to do this, Jennings? You know, and stuff like that. And uh, wonderful people, wonderful writers, wonderful writers. How did you meet Jennings? I met him casually, just on the lot. Uh, How do you do this, you know, Jennings Lang? And then I was going out with somebody else, and they were playing tennis together, and they'd arranged a double date. So I went with my boyfriend, and he went with a lady, and we had a very good time, and that was the end of it. I broke up with my boyfriend at a certain point, and I received a call from Jennings mm-hmm. saying that my boyfriend had gone to him and cried on his shoulder, and could he speak in his behalf about getting back together and getting married and this, all this. And he, I listened to this whole long thing, and I said, Speak for yourself, John, <laughs> because that's a closed book. It was three and a half years uh-huh. of a painful experience I don't wish to go through now. And uh, I said, just, you know, that's it. And so he took me to a party for Joan Crawford at 21, and he took me to see Paul Muni and Inherit the Wind, and we went to the little club afterward, and we had a really good time. And then he flew back to California. I was living in New York. And uh, next week or 10 days later, he called and said, I'm going to be in New York Thursday. Would you like to have dinner? And it started like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it went very swiftly because this was like in the spring of that year and 55, I guess. And we got married on January 1st. 1956, and I moved out to California, and he spoke, he was amazing. He said to my parents, I want you to understand, she's never lived in a house, she's never had kids, flowers were things guys sent to her, she's going to have a garden, you know, it's going to be a whole other life. I don't know whether you want to interfere here or advise her to think about it. He said, I'd like her to come out for two weeks and just stay with the kids, my kids, his kids. He said, and see how she deals with it for herself. And my parents said uh, they thought that was a good idea. And my dad said, 
Monica's like the song, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, except she works out with the clouds, and she's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And I was okay. Fearless. Yeah. Yeah. Or if you are afraid, you just don't show it. No, do it I, anyway. wa I wasn't afraid. I thought that I could do it. Mm-hmm. And I did. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then the story continues on from there. But I think I'd like to play another song. Okay. So get another in a little bit more. Good enough. A little bit more of that, a little bit more of your beautiful singing voice. And then we'll come back. We'll talk. Actually, I want to backtrack just a little bit because before, you know, Jennings, that's a huge chapter of your life, of course. Um, married for 40, you said 40 years? 40 years. 40 years, which yeah. is impressive by any measure. Um, but I'd kind of like to get a little dirt on some of the other dating you did before, uh, okay. before Jennings and me come back. Because you talk about this a lot. There's this book. That's how I kind of learned about you here. It's your memoir. It just came out this year, correct? Yes. And this is Hollywood Through My Eyes. There's a beautiful picture of you on the cover here uh, with a very happy face. And what is this that you're holding? What is that kind of thing? That's called a feather boa. It's like a feather boa. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's a Hollywood thing that guys wouldn't understand, I suppose. But it's a fashion statement. Okay. Well, it's a very nice one. So we'll come back. We'll talk about the book, get a little bit of dirt on some of the other funny okay. things that you went through. Sure. But right now, we're going to play the track, Let's Face the Music and Dance. Uh, this is Monica Lewis. This is also from the 1956 recording. So we're kind of jumping back in time for the music, but this stuff, this stuff is great. So I really want to get you. people this. So thank you again. Um, this is uh, an Independence Day. My name, Joe Armstrong, as always, here every Wednesday night on Lancer Radio. You can learn about us at indepthday.com. That's on the interwebs. Uh, lots of stuff there about our past shows. You can listen to all our previous shows, including your granddaughter, Nikki, Nikki Lang. You can listen to her show, so you can get the you can get the full bookend experience on the Indep Day website. So for now, let's face the music and dance with Monica Lewis. <laughs> may be trouble but while there's moonlight and music and love and romance let's face the music and dance before the fiddlers have played before they ask us to pay the bill and why the music and dance Soon we'll be without the moon Humming a different tune And then There may be teardrops to share So while there's moonlight and music and love and romance Let's face the music and you 
Monica Lewis on Independence Day. Let's face the music and dance. No auto-tune technology <laughs> trickery there. That's the real deal. That's you singing, and that's you singing the one cut the way that the way it, the way God intended it to be once upon a time. <laughs> that's that's it. Uh, fantastic as always. Um, Thank you. And so you know, we were talking before. You know, we talked about your husband Jennings, your late husband Jennings, fantastic guy, movie producer. Um, but you know, let's let's backtrack just a little bit okay. because you, you delve into this quite a bit into this book. You know, you were well. You know, there was a ten-year period, probably nine nine years anyway, between mm-hmm. the time when I had my unfortunate first little marriage, which uh-huh. only in those days you see you got married. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, right. so that I I was a good girl and I got married and it was a disaster. But you learned uh, your lesson. Yeah, so I didn't want to get married for a long time, but. Um, in between, I did date, and uh, which one are you most interested and your, in? Well, your dance card—it's full of some big names that people would know. You know, yeah. the, the two bigger ones, uh, you know, Ronald, Ronald Reagan, Ronnie, as you call him. Um, you know, this is fascinating to me. You know, California legend, um, obviously eight years in the presidency, and yeah, it's—you know—I'm not even really sure what I'm looking for. I mean, my, the question I thought of was. Um, you know, when you were, how old were was he when you two dated? So he this. Well, I don't know how his birthday. He's, or vaguely, I'm just. Well, talking I'm in just general. thinking he has to be about a hundred now, right? Would um, have been. Yeah, about a hundred. Yeah, I think so. Because Nancy's older than I am. Mm-hmm. Nancy's ninety-two or something, and um, so I'm just figuring he had to be at least ten years older. Mm-hmm. So about ten years older. Okay. So if I was twenty. Seven, let's say mm-hmm. he'd be thirty-seven or eight, something yeah. like that. And how how long did you date Ronnie? Uh, a couple of years. Couple of years, okay. Well, so the first uh, first year, the part of it was uh, was in New York, and then he went to London had to make a film, and he used to write to me every night, mm-hmm. and then when he came back, we resumed, and then I went to California, and he was back. Then he came when he came back to California, we resumed more. Physically, in the sense of seeing each other face to face, not phone calls or transatlantic mm-hmm. messages and all that sort of thing. He's also from Illinois. He's from Dixon. Is he? I didn't mm-hmm. really remember that. A little town, uh, just out in the kind of in the middle of the prairie, you know, a couple hours outside of Chicago, not too terribly yeah. far out there. Anyway. Well, he was a very, very lovely guy. He really was. He was very sweet. I was perhaps. Um, not fully, he asked me to marry him, and I knew that I could not fulfill that role because I loved him in a different way. I, I loved him as a person. I thought he was a terrific guy, and we had a lot of fun, and that's true. But um, my feeling was I was still in that hip r- dating writers and people who created and uh I felt maybe I was about eight bars ahead of him in certain ways. Nothing serious, but it was never the full-blown, total thing that you should have, certainly when you've had some experience. Mm-hmm. As a kid, you don't know the difference right. of what this will be for you and how can you contribute to it as a really full partnership. And uh, I had to say no. And then very shortly after that, Nancy uh, moved into the scene. Mm-hmm. 
and they had a very successful marriage, which yeah. was great. And I had a very successful marriage, which was great, too. Absolutely. And not to each other. And so, uh, but did did he, you know, when you were dating him, did he have political aspirations at that time? No, did, did, he did was he... president of the uh, Screen Actors Guild, and he used to write some speeches for me sometimes because uh, MGM used me at dem the Democratic rallies when I wasn't yet, didn't even know where the post office was yet in California. Mm -hmm. uh, but that would sing a song and then do a speech. And um, he was a Democrat then. And uh, he didn't. He actually didn't have any aspirations in that way at all till after, actually, my husband and a few of the guys at MCA put together his being the host of his, was it GE Theater? GE Theater. Um, and he got such a great reception from the audiences when he spoke that a certain group of the Republican wing of MCA was an interesting... MCA was Music Corporation of America who wound up owning Universal Studios, of which my husband was a vice president. They, my husband was a Democrat, but there were guys... They had an evenly distributed hierarchy there, and the Republican guys decided that they wanted to use Ron, uh, Ronnie and uh, conveyed to him that, and... Uh, I guess he was on the shelf about it. You know, he wasn't on the fence, rather, about it. But then he had met Nancy, and Nancy gave him his advice. Mm -hmm. And she wanted him to do that. And so he said, yes, ma'am. And he a did smart that. man. And whatever, he became president Indeed. for At first he became the governor. Uh -huh. Of course. And he became president for eight years. Indeed. So... Uh, did did you two stay in touch over the years? Uh, I mean, not did you ever get calls from the White House? Or? No, he called me just before they got married. Okay. And just said he wanted to wish me a you know, really happy life and that he would always remember, you know, with great love and and uh, and I wished him a happy life and said Nancy's just the perfect person for you, I'm sure, and all that sort of thing. It was a nice thing. He said, Do you want to have a drink? And this has to know. Uh, I thought it was not a good idea. So um, some 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 somebody would have taken a picture, and it would have been wrong. You know why do that? Yeah. So um, anyway, uh, no, I did had had no contact with him whatsoever during his presidency. Mm -hmm. And uh, but people loved him; they really did. I mean, there were people who didn't admire his politics, which weren't as severe as some of the, pardon me, crap that I see today. He never was a guy who was with a hatchet in his hand. But uh, I'm a diehard Democrat, so I know who I am, and I know that uh, some of the policies of everybody are... I'm, I'm so frustrated right now with the way the politics are going, so I don't want to take up your good time. You want nice stories about oh, guys I dated. No, that's okay. <laughs> you know, we, we can talk about that too. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, I do work for uh, an NPR station as well. And there's a lot of what we talk about every day, you know, a, a large percentage of it is politics and it's, you know, it's theater, but it's also, it's, but it's mean. Yeah. There's so much meanness. There's so much, uh, you can, I could attack you in a debate without demeaning you. 
I could say my point, let's say I can't think of what it would be, but let's say the value of something. I can't think of anything right now. But I could try to knock down your point of view without trying to knock you down. Right. And I hate that. It's become very divisive, and it's become very personal, and anything goes. And I don't like it. Yeah, I don't, I don't like it either. You know, I get up in the morning, and I feel great, and I walk in, and I hit my coffee pot, and then I turn on CNN because I want to see what's going on, and, and I say, oh, my God, it's all so, it's going to make me miserable for the next 20 minutes. Yeah. You know, so maybe I watch the Today Show where they're yeah. cooking something or yeah. <laughs> baking. It gets, it gets to the point where you almost feel like you have to avert your eyes because to pay attention, you're witnessing mayhem things that, you know, like I said, it's, it's all it's theater, but it does have an effect on people's lives. And, and you wouldn't have this in polite society. I mean, if you go to a party, you don't look around to see who you can kill, you know? Yeah. It's just so unbelievable to me that grown people behave in this manner. It's yeah. just I just find it odious. Having a great word, by the way, and having seen all the changes that you've seen. I mean, what what do you think of of Obama? Of what you know as a life as a, as a as a lifer Democrat? I mean, what do you think about the situation? I mean, do you? Uh, he's a compromiser, which I I think is a good thing. Um, and what do you, well, you know, since we've touched on this, I'd be curious, you've, you've seen so much. What do, you, what do you think of him? Well, I had high hopes for his regime. I certainly did. And I think that he's faced just the enormity of no matter what it is he proposes, that block says no way, the Republican block. Now, I think that there are some compromises that have been made, minimal. He's made some. Definitely. But they've made very little. And I have this awful feeling all the time that it goes back to the basic, terrible, perhaps racist, or envy. The man speaks like no one has in years. You know, he's such a great speaker. And he swept the country with a joyous... Uh, most exciting moment. But there are those people who do not like him for reasons that have nothing to do with the health care program. And I think that that has invaded or showed up its ugly head again. And uh, people hide it all the time, but it's there. Mm -hmm. And I think that without saying it more blatantly than that, I think that's part of it. And it's, it, it's heartbreaking to me. Uh, I think he's done the best he could under the worst circumstances, plus this additional horrible when they went through that birther bit, and where were you born? <laughs> and you know, I mean, yeah. really. That was a dog and pony show, I think. Wow. I, 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 I actually had a, a friend, a pretty Republican friend, uh, we were talking on, like through the Internet, and I, I actually I couldn't believe it. I actually got through to him. Because I was like, don't you see that this is a sideshow? Regardless of whether you like the guy or not, this is a distraction that nobody needs. No. It has no bearing on anyone's ability to govern well and no, no bearing on anything, really. It's just a sideshow. And it, people got so carried away with it, it was completely absurd. Um, and Donald Trump kept pushing this thin, 
message, you know, and questioning his heritage and his origin and his Muslim connections. You know, I don't know. I think that this is like scraping the bottom of the barrel to just find anything of dirt, and that makes news. Yeah. What is wrong with saying they discovered a enzyme or a cell that can cure or stave off whether it's breast cancer or whatever it is. I'm very involved with the uh, uh, diabetic uh, population because Nikki is diabetic. My beautiful granddaughter Mm -hmm. was diagnosed at 10 with juvenile diabetes. She never had a cold in her life. Uh, so when a member of your family is diagnosed with that, the whole family has it, if mm-hmm. in a sense. No one, none of us has it. Her sister doesn't have it. No one has it. But the point I'm saying, your interests become very focused mm-hmm. on the cure, the possible cure, which is no lo- not yet found, and the prevention. But you can't prevent type 1. Type 1 has nothing to do with big, fat people, you know, not caring or having a high blood pressure at the same time and not, not, and not taking care of themselves. Uh, this is something that is a cell, and the pancreas just doesn't work. Yeah. And it has to work for you to live. And uh, it's an amazing thing, and my son's very involved with mm-hmm. that and has a, an organization called the Joe Tucan Project, which is a doll that he designed for little kids, and he has the most successful book called Lara Takes Charge, mm-hmm. which is about a little girl who has it, and it's got all pictures and playthings and little tools that come with it and stuff, and it's all to um, see that the children, it's all to do with children mm-hmm. who have to live with this and can live better mm-hmm. by this kind of treatment. And uh, the American Diabetics Asso- Association is just thinks my son is, you know, mm-hmm. so creative and brilliant that they have asked him to take charge of many of the youth movements on this. So we're, we're involved with that. But it's- whatever it is, when there's a breakthrough, it's a minimal thing on the news. You know, in the news, in the part where the doctor is on the, the show, because we have these formats. Now we have the sports, and now we have the medical, and now we have, you know, that we'll tell about something that broke through. But it's never given the attention yeah. that all the dirt is given. Well, I think it's uh, the adage, uh, sell them, you know, sell us the disease and then sell us the cure. Mm-hmm. That's more profitable than wellness. Yeah. Yeah. So until Crazy. we figure out a way to make wellness profitable or to get people just to shut up about it, you know, I and, think that's where we're and then stuck. There, there was a newscaster who said he was resigning. I can't remember when he said it. It was about five, six years ago. He said, that my, my instructions were, if it bleeds, it leads. So that's the opening shot you'll get is either of a yeah. rape or a, a murder or somebody and, and all the people on the street talking about it and crying. Got to keep them afraid. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway. <laughs> We've gotten way out on the on the, well, on the limb here, but you touched on you touched on Nikki there. You know, yes. like I said, Nikki was on the show. Um, what you know, you must give her advice. She must come to you for advice. I mean, with the, the lineage that you've got in show business, you know what what kind of advice do you give Nikki? You know, when she be asks yourself, you about 
be yourself, do your thing. She writes her own music. She writes. She's now branching out into working with somebody else on a couple of tunes. But since she was about 12, she wrote all her own music and all her own lyrics. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was it. And now she's writing with um, Ray Kennedy, who was a big uh, guy in the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, who's an elderly gentleman at this point, but he had major hits mm-hmm. and a songwriter. And also she did something with Law, you know, mm-hmm. the, the guy in New York, uh, Lou Worrell, but it's L star, A star, mm-hmm. and he's a rock and more rock guy, uh-huh. an R&B guy. And they remixed a song that she did as a straight ballad that she wrote with him bringing it into that other world. Uh-huh. So she's branching out and she's, She's just Nikki. She's just Nikki. Yeah. I think she should be in the movies, but she has made no effort to uh, be even looked at Yeah. because she's just so photogenic. She has a video out that's just uh-huh. fabulous. She has time. I know. You know? Yes. She's, she's but a wee lass. Yeah, she's, she's 19. She's, 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 got, <laughs> she's got plenty of time. The, the movie people will be there. When she's ready, if she chooses to yeah. do that, so that's, yeah. you know, because she just—you can't get a bad photo of this kid, you know. Uh-huh. And all the top photographers want to shoot her. Yeah. You know? you know, and in terms of, you know, she seems to have her head pretty squarely oh, put on her shoulders, and bad behavior uh, seems to, you know, is, is always kind of been endemic to the arts, and you know, people who then once you put money on top of all that kind yeah. of bad behavior, it just a huge fire starts. So, in your career, how did you manage to avoid all the craziness with the the drinking and the drugs and the, the just the, the crazy behavior? How did you stay? Well, you know, I don't want to say on the straight and narrow, but you know, how did you manage to be so careful. salient, careful, and so sane? Uh. When I was with Benny Goodman, which was also an early boon and was a big thing, I was with him only for a couple of weeks. Peggy Lee was a singer, and she eloped with uh, Dave Barber, who was the guitar player, and he needed someone that night. And there was a cattle call. And Leonard Feather, who was wrote like many books on, and was uh, with the L.A. Times, I believe, for years, but he was a, a, a critic, and he was a friend. He called me up and said, "You better get down there." And I went there, and I, there were three hundred girls, and I had to sing a song, and everybody had to sing a song. He said, "Kid, could you come back tonight at seven thirty? And that was how I got on. I was on national radio that night. That was very early, very very early when I was in the early twenties, but there was. I got to know the different bands, and there was a band called Woody Herman. I'm getting to what you asked me. And Woody Herman had a trumpet player, and he was 22 years old, and I thought he was quite remarkable, and I came to work and found out that he had died of an overdose that day, 22 years old. My goodness. And I was so shaken. And at that time, there wasn't so much cocaine. I didn't hear about that. You heard about heroin, and you knew everybody was smoking marijuana. But I I didn't smoke marijuana because my mother would have just had a fit. So I didn't do any of that because I didn't want to have a big scene at home. But I was so shaken by hearing about this that I thought to myself, 
What in the world could make you want to take a needle, shove it in your arm, and die? Perhaps, which mm-hmm. he did. Yeah, I hope it was worth it. You know, yeah. And I just stayed away from that stuff always. I did have, I did drink, but I never drank like, uh, oh, she's a drinker. I mean, you know, um, I liked wine and I had a drink. And, uh, you know, when I, when I got past the point where you, they served me orange juice, because in New York, of course, you had to be 21 to drink. I mean, so I was always given orange juice at all my jobs. But, uh, but I never had a problem with drinking. That was not my problem mm-hmm. at all. Yeah. Well, it's, it's completely possible, I, I think, maybe, maybe erroneously, to have a, a healthy relationship with something like that. You know, it's, 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 a, it's just another thing that you can do, and if you're in control of it and it's not in control of you, it can be an enjoyable yeah. experience. Yeah. You know, very simple. It doesn't have to be You know, some people have a switch. Um, I've got some. I've got a member of my family who's like this, where it's it's either all the way on or all the way off, and there is no middle ground. That's at not all. good. And that's not good. And that's 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 a disease. That's a that that's is a problem. Well, you know. yeah, and I've got members of you know extended family. Uh, I had an uncle who was an alcoholic, and uh, he ruined his life. Yeah. And I've had other people I know very well, but they've conquered it. Mm-hmm. They uh, with alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, they became AA or whatever they did, you know, but they, they have it under control. And those who don't, don't do so well. Yeah. And I just can't stand. I hate my infirmities now. I hate the things that just come with being old. I hate the fact that I don't dare kick over my head, which I'm capable of, because I will fall on my back. I know that my balance isn't right. Mm-hmm. Um so things things happen to you from normal purposes. Why look for something to make you mm-hmm. sick? I can't believe that. Life is complicated enough as it is. Uh, as Why it is. make it yeah. harder? Right. So what, you know, you, you've, you've aged very, very gracefully. You know, what, Thank you. What, um, you know, what's, what's your secret? What's your advice for aging gracefully? You know, starting at any age, you know, what, you're, you're sharp as a tack, you know, still very beautiful. And you, you, you've sung just a little bit for us here. Do you still sing? I mean, I, I, mean, sto- not I, I don't really sing this, sing this around year. The house? I stopped. I stopped about six months ago, actually, because we had some wildfires, and I was very. I must have been very allergic to the uh, smoke or the stuff, and I opened my mouth when I was singing in the house, you know, with a piano player, uh, twice a week for years, just for me just to express myself, have fun. I have wonderful collection of uh, books with all the great composers and all the songwriters, all the way, you know, through the Beatles, through the new Elvis. I mean, all the way. I kept, but I started with Gershwin. What's your Beatles? I'm very curious. What's your Beatles song that you like to sing? Oh, I I don't know. Hold, Hold my hand or something like that. I don't know. I would put it to a samba beat. Uh Uh-huh. I would change it around, of course, but to do my way. But um, I admire all the, the composers. I admire the writers. I, I admire the artists. I admire the creative people, and I am a firm friend to performers. So that's not a problem. I just suddenly opened my mouth that day, and the the 
the hell with the top notes, which were gone. The rest of it sounded very weird to me. And I said to Mike Asher, who my, was my accompanist and musical director for a number of years, I, I don't think I can sing today. And he said, well, you better call your doctor or something. And uh, I went to, to the throat doctor, and he said, you've bruised your vocal cords from all the coughing. And he said, I advise you to not sing mm -hmm. for about six months and let it heal. Well, I want to tell you something. It was like a death sentence. And no one knows <laughs> what I felt like about it inside. Yeah. But I was really, really, really upset. Yeah. And I haven't really tried to sing since then. Uh, I sang a few notes the other day. I went to the piano and I started to do practicing, you know, Lululu's. Mm -hmm. Lululu, you know, and the, and the top note would shatter a little. So I'd go down a little more and... Uh, oh God! <laughs> it's too many. It's work. It's like learning how to ride a bike all, again. Yeah, all my life it was so natural. Uh huh. I opened my mouth and it came out there. You well, know? I, I I sincerely hope that that you, you know, stick it out and get it back because you have such a wonderful gift and you know you've shared it with so many people for so long and it's meant I can tell it's meant a very you know most of all it's meant a great deal to you. A music is what. Yeah, it's all about yeah. for me, you know. Basically, you and all I, we we share that in common. You and I. That's 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 what gets me up in the morning. It's what I'm thinking about when I go to bed at night. See, I was very lucky. I was very photogenic. You can be very beautiful. Ava Gardner was more beautiful in person than she photographed. Some people just photograph great. I don't know why. Bone structure, maybe. I don't know what it is. But I was very lucky. So that helped a lot. I don't deny it. Other people saying, well, I did better with getting the jobs maybe because the photograph looked better. Who knows? And you weren't a jerk. Well, I never was a jerk, That's I hope. That's what I mean. Yeah. And um, I also, you know, could do other things. I could, I could work with Bob Hope, and I could work with comics, and I could get the timing, and I could also... I never got to the part I might have really wanted to, as a heavy dramatic actress because we, so it's yet to be known how great I would have been. You know, I got parts and roles, but to do some of the things I might have wanted also to do. Mm -hmm. But I did a lot. Yeah. And I did enough. And I had a good time. And I had a great marriage. And I have a great kid. And I've had a long life. And I think that uh, I'm lucky. I just am so lucky. And people say to me, you know, what is it? I said, it could be genetic. All I know is, you know, people say you had to, you were mislegogenic. Where did you get such, how did you have such great legs? I because my mother did. How did you get this? And my father did, you know, or whatever. I think a lot of it's genetic. It's a, it's a coin toss. You yeah. Know? I, have, I have great eyes. I can see, I'm, you know, at my age, I can see perfectly. How great. Which is, I, I, I consider myself to be extremely fortunate in that regard. You know, How great. I have bad allergies, so that's the trade-off, you know. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, some people, I guess, get it all, but not too many people get no. everything. But, so, but what, I mean, this is kind of, this is how we started off on this tangent, which I, I enjoyed very much. But what, what, for aging gracefully, what is your, 
aging gracefully. Yeah, yeah because you've, you've accepted. You've, you've, you've succeeded so well at this. And what what is your? You accept it. You try not to be behind the times and not always think the old days were the best. The old days were what they were, and they were great sometimes. But I went through a lot of bad things in the early days that were difficult financially and otherwise, uh, emotionally. Um, just. It's, again, face the day. Face what you are. Uh, the dimples have become wrinkles. That's the way it goes, man, you know? If you're going to worry about it or worry about how much plastic surgery you're going to have or any of that stuff, I think it takes t so much time and so much effort and so much concentration on what I would rather do something for someone else to make their life better. I certainly want to take care of myself the best I can, but not to the extent that I don't do some things that are not very good for you. Mm -hmm. And everyone's crazed because I smoke, but at my age it is very hard to stop. So you're still smoking now? I smoke, but I don't smoke like I used to. But I do light a cigarette every now and then. And, you know, the whole family goes berserk. But I keep it in my, you know, I don't do it out with other people. Uh -huh. And I don't do it in front of children. And I don't dare smoke in people's homes. Mm -hmm. And you can't smoke in any outside place. Uh, you can't smoke in any restaurant. So you're limited in when you can, and it's in your bathroom mainly, like like little boys who are sneaking and smoking like school, don't like want mom and dad to know. Yeah, you're 13 years old, trying. Indeed, indeed. But we've just got a couple minutes left, but I've got just a couple more questions I really want to get to that I've been I've got saved here in my hopper. Um, of all the performances and all the things that you've done, is there one performance or one night or one song or one thing that you think is your favorite or was your you consider to be closest to your heart. I don't want to say just best because that's subjective, but this is what it means to you. I don't necessarily mean this could be a song you sang standing on a bluff somewhere that you sang to yourself. This could be something in, in front of an audience. It could be a movie performance. But what, what would you consider it as the most dear to your heart of all the things that you've done? I think there were two things. One was the opening of the Persian Room at the, at the Plaza Hotel. That was, to me, a, a very acme, a apex, a high, high, high note. So that the show was the best. I can't say one song. Mm -hmm. And then after my husband had a stroke is when I went back to singing again. And we took him in the wheelchair to a little place called the Nucleus Nuance, which no longer exists. And I sang Make Someone Happy. And I took the mic from the podium or the dais or the little stage they constructed and went down to his side and sang it to him. And do you remember Army Archard, the, the columnist? He wrote in his paper, there wasn't a dry eye in the house, which is a saying that's been used a lot, but it was totally applicable. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard to sing when you're, when you're upset. I know that I, you know. Well, I sang, I was singing it to him, and he had a smile on his face, and it was twisted up, because he was still in the half paralyzed in the one side of his cheek. And 
he was smiling and held my hand and was so proud. And they had the spotlight move that little they had a moving spotlight on us, and it was an amazing moment. And that song seems to say it all anyway. Mm-hmm. Make someone happy. Make just one someone happy, and you will be happy too. Indeed, that's that's also sage sage advice. Um, just like I said, we're almost done here. Um, is there anyone other than Nikki Lang, of course, artists that you hear now that you like or think are doing good things? Well, I like a lot of different kind of people. I like Shakira. I think she's fun to watch. And now there's a person who's not, you know, essentially your the Lady Gaga phenomenon or anything, but she's fun to watch. She's, she sings well, she dances great, and she's just a fun show. Mm-hmm. Um, a performer. Performer. Um, I like Michael Bublé because he reminds me of the old days. He sings like <laughs> all the mm-hmm. old songs the old way. The band plays a little differently, but it's still the old way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Hugh Jackman is the best thing that ever happened yeah. at all. In years, since Sammy Davis, mm-hmm. my God, I saw him the other night on Jay Leno's show, and he just absolutely impromptuly said, would you like to hear a little bit of what I'm going to be doing in my one-man show? And he got up and did it, and I was sitting all alone, because no one sleeps in my house. I have help in the daytime, but I don't have anyone there. And I was all alone, and I sat on the edge of my bed, and I applauded I absolutely did. I applauded, and I i don't know him. He has got it all. He can sing. He can dance. He can act. He's funny. Good-looking. Good-looking. He's a personality. hes He just rocked me, mm-hmm. really. Um, I'm sure there are half a dozen more. Um, I love Natalie Cole. I just love her singing. She's I got think, the lineage. Oh, she's just an amazing singer. Mm-hmm. And um, gosh, I would that's a question I should think about because there are a number of people I really like and they're just not coming to my mind at, at the moment. I like a lot of the new people. Um, I just, I'm not crazy about rap because I never can catch up with what they're saying. So it's difficult for me to discern, you know, who's a better one or not. So I, because I, I get lost mm-hmm. in their singing or whatever that is. <laughs> I don't mean to be mean, but I'm, I'm not sure I always know what it is. I don't think you're the intended demographic anyway, so I think you're safe. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think you're safe. Well, I've got one last question for you, and then I'll let you get out of here. I have no, you know... I, I don't know what your bedtime is, but we're actually kind of approaching mine, it feels like. Wow. Um, uh, And so after a life in music, a life in performing, um, all the things you've done, your world travels, singing in front of 150,000 soldiers, singing, you know, doing movies and with your family, what what does music mean to you? Everything. Uh, Well, it doesn't, doesn't precede love and care and family but it's right there it's there music is very essential i listen to music all the time i have it on half the day yeah awesome well monica lewis 
I can't thank you enough. Thank you for spending this hour with us here on Independence Day. It's been an absolute blessing having you here. Um, I hope maybe you come back and see us someday when that new album of yours comes out that, <laughs> that we're looking forward to. You know, when, when I'm 100. When, when you're 100 <laughs> and it's still a spring chicken and you're still singing beautifully and you're, you're shining your... You're shining, you know, your, your radiant light that you've, we've experienced here tonight. So thank you so very much. Well, thank and we, you. And we look forward to hearing more from your your offspring. You know, your, you know, your, your, My granddaughter. Your granddaughter. I was going to say your offspring, but it's your offspring's offspring. And yes. you know, keep it in the family and, and keep doing wonderful things. So thank you so very much. For thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. Uh, thank again to Monica Lewis, also to the Independence Day staff, Dale Tanksley and Wayne Topinski, and to Valentina Rivera and engineer Victor Cornejo from Lancer Radio for Independence Day. I'm Joe Armstrong. Be good to one another. Holding hands at midnight Neath a starry sky Nice work if you can get it And you can get it if you try Strolling with the one boy Sigh after sigh Nice work if you can get it And you can get it